0: Welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. So today on the podcast, we are uh, dealing with something a little bit heavy, so I'm going to put a content warning up right at the top. It's a very violent case, uh, a violent murder of an Indigenous woman in Alberta, So we've given the content warning. If this is something you need to take care of while listening, please do. If this is something that you feel you need to skip, no worries on our end. Please feel free to go ahead and listen to something else. So today we're going to cover The Queen and Barton. We're probably going to release this as a multi-part series, and we're going to try to get all the levels of the decision recorded for you, because this is one of the ones that, you know, we think it'll really help if people can listen to all the levels of the decision I read the Court of Appeal decision from Alberta when I was in 1L because the Supreme Court decision had come out just this past year. So are you the same, Zach? Did you read the uh, Court of Appeal decision?
1: Yes. Um, Actually, we had to read the Court of Appeal decision and provide a case commentary on it for my criminal law class. It was something that Professor Tandovich had us do for a bunch of... um, Like seminal, I don't want to say seminal, that's not fair, but a bunch of high profile Mm -hmm. um, Supreme Court of Canada or Court of Appeal decisions. And this was one of one. And this was the last one, which I think served us the best as students, because I think at that point, we had the best understanding of the law. And I think at the time, we were mostly focused on the 276 aspect of it tied in with the access Mm -hmm. to justice And cultural competencies aspects of this case as well. So I did read it, and I didn't actually have to end up reading the whole thing. But by accident, I read the whole case back to front from the Anka decision. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's horrific, some of the details. It's ghastly doesn't even begin to describe it.
0: Yeah. It's a whole lot. Um, I definitely recommend taking breaks when you're absorbing this decision. I certainly had to. It's absolutely terrible. And it's the trial decision, which the Court of Appeal commented on repeatedly, was quite racist in how they referred to the uh, woman who died, Cindy Gladue. Um, and the definitely the Supreme Court of Canada dissenting opinion also commented on that as well, how, you know, the trial judge sort of offhand referred to her as a native prostitute and so did the Crown and so did the defense. And it was just sort of, you know, poor cultural competency all around, which the both the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court commented on. But the 276 issue, which is, you know, they were supposed to hold a separate hearing in order to determine the admissibility of prior sexual activity of the deceased. And they did not really do that. And they didn't have a full hearing about it. And they, you know, just sort of repeatedly brought up a bunch of her previous sexual history, including that with the accused. And it wasn't ever put in its proper context. And they never had an admissibility hearing about it. And that was the ultimate issue that ended up getting appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court was sort of the lack of following of this entire section of the code.
1: Yeah, and we have we have that section of the code for this exact reason. And there are from the trial decision, um, and taking the time to understand what happened there, there are so many things that went wrong. Cause sometimes we have cases that we read for the podcast you're like you can see the threat of justice working mm-hmm. and ultimately supreme court says this is the way it's going to be writ large mm-hmm. this is one of those cases where something horrific started and was the entirety of the trial and had to be corrected once at the court of appeal and then affirmed at the supreme court at least in terms of the dissent and their um, approach about cultural competency because that's really That's really the hardest part about this case for me personally is just the horrific language used because I don't think sometimes people appreciate like the effects of language. It's so strange. It's so strange. But language matters. That's my, my through line for this one.
0: No, it's I mean, it does and it do. And it's definitely one of those things where. You know, even there's a trial decision and there's also an additional decision and, you know, warning, this is pretty graphic, but there's also an additional admissibility decision about preserving essentially a piece of the deceased pelvis in order to introduce it as evidence because she died from an 11 inch wound to her interior vaginal wall. And sort of, I understand that we like to think as the justice of the justice system as sort of a cold truth-finding machine however I think there wasn't really credence given to the trauma that something like that could have caused the family members of the deceased and sort of that's a huge invasion of this woman who has passed life and uh, I know that the ev- that particular evidence got a lot of criticism um both you know in passing in the higher levels of the decision but also from the public because there were very very credible criticisms brought in you know would this have happened had the deceased not been indigenous do we ever do this type of thing with a non-indigenous deceased you know it got into a lot of very broader societal problems and it is definitely a microcosm for sort of you know how we treat indigenous women as a society and it's, you know, it's not great. And it's definitely an area that needs a vast amount of improvement.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: But yeah, so again, uh, really take care with this one. It's very graphic. Please try to put it in the context where it belongs and consider the background of racism against indigenous people in Alberta, specifically when looking at the trial decision and we hope it's very uh, insightful and it's a good um, experience for you guys to learn about this very important decision. Enjoy. The Queen and Barton. Appeal heard October 11th, 2018. Judgment rendered May 24th, 2019 on appeal from a judgment of the Alberta Court of Appeal. The appeal is allowed in part. Chief Justice Wagner and Justices Abella and Karakatsanis dissenting in part. The judgment of Justices Moldaver, Cote, Brown, and Roe was delivered by Justice Moldaver. Part 1, Overview. We live in a time where myths, stereotypes, and sexual violence against women, particularly Indigenous women and sex workers, are tragically common. Our society has yet to come to grips with just how deep-rooted those issues truly are and just how devastating their consequences can be. Without a doubt, eliminating myths, stereotypes, and sexual violence against women is one of the more pressing challenges we face as a society. While serious efforts are being made by a range of actors to address and remedy these failings both within the criminal justice system and throughout Canadian society more broadly, this case attests to the fact that more needs to be done. Put simply, we can and must do better. This appeal centers on the death of Cindy Gladue and Bradley Barton's role in that death. Ms. Gladue, an Indigenous woman and sex worker, was found dead in the bathroom of Mr. Barton's Edmonton hotel room with an 11-centimeter wound in her vaginal wall. Mr. Barton, who was in town for a moving job, was charged with first-degree murder. At trial, before a judge and jury, the Crown's theory was that on the night of Miss Gladue's death, during the course of commercial sexual activities while she was incapacitated by alcohol, Mr. Barton cut the inside of her vagina with a sharp object with intent to seriously harm or kill her. He then carried her to the bathroom, where she bled to death. This was, in the Crown's submission, murder while committing sexual assault with a weapon. As such, it constituted first-degree murder. Alternatively, the Crown took the position that if Mr. Barton did not murder Miss Gladue, he committed unlawful act manslaughter by causing her death in the course of a sexual assault. Mr. Barton told a different story. He testified that he and Miss Gladue engaged in similar consensual sexual activity on both the night leading up to her death and the previous night. On both occasions, he said, he formed his fingers into a cone and penetrated her vagina, thrusting repeatedly. He claimed that on the second night, After thrusting deeper, more forcefully, and for a longer duration, she started to bleed unexpectedly, at which point the sexual activity came to a halt. Miss Gladue then went into the bathroom and he promptly fell asleep, only to awake the next morning and find her dead in the bathtub. He said that after discovering her lifeless body, he left the hotel in a panic, returned, called 911, and fabricated different versions of a false story. Although he admitted at trial that he tore her vaginal wall and thereby caused her death, he claimed this was a non-culpable accident. He denied ever using a sharp object and asserted that she consented to the sexual activities in question, or at least he honestly believed she did. At trial, although Mr. Barton testified at length about his sexual activity with Miss Gladue on the night before her death, No application was made and no separate hearing held to determine the admissibility of that evidence. Nor was the jury given any limiting instruction identifying the purposes for which that evidence could and could not be used. This despite the regime under Section 276 of the Code which imposes these and other requirements. After having received the trial judge's final charge outlining the legal principles to be applied, The jury acquitted Mr. Barton of first-degree murder and the included offense of unlawful act manslaughter. The Crown appealed, seeking a new trial. In lengthy and detailed reasons, the Alberta Court of Appeal identified a list of errors that it said warranted a new trial. In addition, the Court of Appeal expressed serious concern that nationally used pattern jury charges on sexual offenses contribute to stereotypes, cause persistent analytical problems in applying the law and exacerbate inequality leading it to recommend new pattern jury instructions. In the result, the Court of Appeal allowed the Crown's appeal, set aside Mr. Barton's acquittal and ordered a new trial on first-degree murder. Mr. Barton now appeals to this court. He maintains that he was denied procedural fairness at the Court of Appeal and that the legal errors identified by that court were either non-existent or of no moment. On this basis, he asks that his acquittal be restored. The Crown, for its part, maintains that the Court of Appeal observed the requirements of procedural fairness, and its decision to order a new trial on first-degree murder was sound. For reasons that follow, I am of the view that a new trial is warranted. The central error committed by the trial judge was his failure to comply with the mandatory requirements set out under the 276 regime. That error had ripple effects, most acutely in the instructions on the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent, upon which Mr. Barton relied. In particular, non-compliance with the Section 276 regime which serves as a crucial screening function where an accused relies on the complainant's prior sexual activities in support of his defense, translated into a failure to expose and properly address misleading evidence and mistakes of law arising from Mr. Barton's defense. This in turn resulted in reversible error warranting a new trial. That said, I am respectfully of the view that the new trial should be restricted to the offense of unlawful act manslaughter not murder. As I will develop, in view of the position taken by the Crown at trial, the charge of murder against Mr. Barton hinged on a relatively straightforward factual question. In causing Miss Gladue's death, did Mr. Barton use a sharp object? If he did, then all that was left to prove was that he had the requisite intent for murder, a proposition which would follow readily from evidence that he used a sharp object. If he did not, then in view of the position taken by the Crown, the charge of murder could not be sustained. Evidently, the jury rejected the Crown's sharp object theory, and as I will demonstrate, none of the legal errors committed in the course of the trial had a material bearing on the murder charge. In the circumstances, I am of the view that it would be inappropriate to require Mr. Barton to face a new trial on first-degree murder. Accordingly, I would allow the appeal in part and order a new trial on unlawful act, manslaughter. Part two, background. Subpart A, sexual activities and Miss Gladue's death. In June, 2011, Mr. Barton, a large and strong man who works as a mover, rented an Edmonton hotel room for two nights while on a long haul moving job with two colleagues. On both nights, he engaged in commercial sexual activities with Miss Gladue a 36-year-old Indigenous woman of Métis and Cree ancestry, and a sex worker. What happened on those two nights was largely contested at trial. 1. First Night Mr. Barton testified that on the first night, he agreed to pay Miss Gladue $60 for, quote, everything, which he defined as, quote, intercourse, sex. He said that in his hotel room she performed oral sex on him, and at the same time, he formed his fingers into a cone and inserted his hand into her vagina, thrusting repeatedly, just past the knuckle for five to 10 minutes. He described her body language as being good throughout and did not notice any problems or difficulties or disagreement on her part. They then had vaginal intercourse, after which they exchanged phone numbers and she left for the night. Two, second night. On the second night, Mr. Barton called Miss Gladue and they agreed to meet at the hotel bar, where Mr. Barton was having drinks with one of his work colleagues. At the bar, Miss Gladue placed her leg over Mr. Barton's lap and they were acting friendly towards one another, with Mr. Barton touching and stroking Miss Gladue's leg. She had a couple of drinks while at the bar. After a last call, Mr. Barton, Miss Gladue, and Mr. Barton's work colleague got up and left. On the way back to his room, Mr. Barton asked his colleague if he wanted a piece of Miss Gladue. His colleague declined, so Mr. Barton and Miss Gladue proceeded to Mr. Barton's room alone. Mr. Barton testified that while he and Miss Gladue did not discuss what sexual activities would be performed that night in his hotel room, they agreed to the same price as the night before, and Miss Gladue, quote, knew what she was coming for. He said that after the two each had a beer in his room, he said, quote, "'Cindy, let's get at this,' to which she replied, "'Okay.'" She then went into the bathroom and came out nude and then sat on the corner of his bed. He said he asked her if she was all good to go and ready, and she replied, "'Yeah.'" Mr. Barton testified that Miss Gladue, while seated at the corner of the bed, pulled him in and performed oral sex on him while he was standing, and he then began thrusting his fingers into her vagina. He admitted that the thrusting on the second night, which he said lasted about 10 minutes, was a little harder than the night before and maybe a little farther, one or two centimeters past his knuckles. He said that as he was thrusting, communication was good, and there was moaning and groaning going on, all good signs, working it really good, thrusting. It was good. All signs were go. He agreed in chief that she never expressed any disagreement. He also said that she was expressing pleasure through moans and groans and that she was making good moans. Mr. Barton testified that he stopped thrusting and noticed blood on his fingers. He said he asked Ms. Gladue whether she was on her period and she replied, maybe I am. He said he was no longer interested in having sex with her and refused to pay her. He then cleaned up in the bathroom, came back and told her to wash up and leave. He said she then went into the bathroom, after which he promptly fell asleep. Subpart B, Mr. Barton's after-the-fact conduct. Mr. Barton testified that he awoke to find Miss Gladue dead in a pool of blood in the bathtub, and panicked. He stepped on the blood, grabbed a towel, cleaned his feet and part of the floor, got dressed, and left the room. He threw the bloody towel in the garbage bin outside, where it was later recovered by the police. He put his bag in his van, and went back to the hotel, and checked out. Mr. Barton then went back to his van, where he was joined by one of his work colleagues. The colleague told Mr. Barton they were going to have a good day, to which Mr. Barton replied, not until the police come. He then told his colleague that there was a girl in his room bleeding. He claimed he did not know her. She had just showed up at his hotel door the night before and asked to take a shower, and he let her in. His colleague told him to go back to the hotel and call 911. Mr. Barton returned to the hotel and asked the clerk for a new key card, claiming he had forgotten some papers. He then dialed 911 using the hotel room phone and asked for the police. He told the operator that a girl he did not know knocked on his door the night before and wanted to use the shower, and he went to bed and woke up the next morning to find her dead in his bathtub. He told the operator he was shaking like crazy and scared shitless. When the police arrived, Mr. Barton told an officer that I didn't do anything. I'm married, and I don't do this stuff. Later that day, Mr. Barton met up with one of his colleagues at the truck stop and explained that he was fingering Miss Gladue when she started to bleed, at which point he said, that was enough of that, and passed out. An autopsy performed on Miss Gladue the day after her death revealed an 11-centimeter wound that went completely through and ran almost the full length of her vaginal wall. Cause of death was determined to be loss of blood due to her injury. The following day, the police arrested Mr. Barton in Calgary and transported him back to Edmonton in a van. While in the van, Mr. Barton initiated a conversation with an undercover officer posing as a fellow prisoner. Mr. Barton said he rented the hotel room but let two guys who were working with him sleep in it while he slept in his truck. He said that he entered the room in the morning to find the room trashed and a girl sitting in the bathtub covered in blood, prompting him to call the police immediately. He denied any wrongdoing. Mr. Barton was charged with first-degree murder. Subpart C. Position of the Crown The Crown's case on first-degree murder hinged on its submissions that Mr. Barton cut Miss Gladue's vaginal wall using a sharp object, intending to seriously harm or kill her. The Crown maintained that after he cut her, he carried her to the bathroom and placed her in the bathtub where she bled to death. This was in the Crown's submission, murder while committing sexual assault with a weapon. As such, it constituted first-degree murder under Section 2315C and 235 of the Code. While no murder weapon was found, the Crown hypothesized that Mr. Barton might have disposed of it in a grassy area near the hotel. Alternatively, the Crown took the position that if Mr. Barton did not murder Miss Gladue, he committed unlawful act manslaughter contrary to Section 2225 a and 234 of the Code by causing her death in course of a sexual assault. While the Crown spent relatively little time developing this alternative theory at trial, it identified three independent routes to a manslaughter conviction, all of which rested on a finding of sexual assault against Miss Gladue, which in turn hinged on proof of one of the following. Lack of capacity to consent on Miss Gladue's part due to intoxication, lack of actual consent on her part, vitiation of consent due to public policy reasons, namely because Mr. Barton intentionally caused bodily harm to her in the course of otherwise consensual sexual activities. Two Crown experts testified that the wound which led to Miss Gladue's death was caused by a sharp object. These experts considered that there was an absence of bridging, that is, small tissue fibers across the mouth of the wound, That would characterize a laceration the tearing of soft body tissue caused by blunt force trauma the crown also adduced an opinion from one of its experts that in order to cause Gladue's injury by insertion of one's fingers and hand into her vagina it would have taken extreme excessive or considerable force the expert defined considerable force to mean an independent witness would know you're going to hurt that person in addition, the crown led toxicology evidence showing that Miss Gladue's blood alcohol concentration at the time of death was 340 milligrams, over four times the legal limit to drive. Relying on this and other evidence, the crown theorized that Miss Gladue was incapacitated and lying in the middle of the bed when Mr. Barton used a sharp object to cut her. The crown also adduced evidence from an expert bloodstain analysis who noted that while bloodstains were found at the center of the bed, none were found on the corner of the bed where Mr. Barton said Miss Gladue was sitting. Nor was there any blood on the carpet across which Miss Gladue would have had to walk to enter the bathroom on her own. Finally, Crown Counsel took the position that Mr. Barton's after-the-fact conduct, that is, the things he said and did after the alleged commission of the offense, betrayed his conscience of guilt and belied his claim that Miss Gladue's death was mere accident. Part D. Position of the defense. In his defense, Mr. Barton denied using a sharp object. He also relied on the evidence of an expert who, unlike the crown experts, noticed significant bridging in Miss Gladue's wound and testified that it was a laceration resulting from blunt force trauma, not a cut. When presented with a hypothetical mirroring the sexual activity Mr. Barton said took place on the second night, the defense expert agreed that such activity could have caused the injury. She further stated that a number of factors might affect the strength of a woman's vaginal wall example age, nutrition, alcoholism, frequent sexual activity. And if the kind of sexual activity described by Mr. Barton did in fact occur on the first night, then that, too, could have weakened Miss Gladue's vaginal wall on the second night. The defense further took the position that Miss Gladue was only moderately intoxicated on the second night, relying on video evidence of her walking in the hotel hallway, evidence from various witnesses, and Mr. Barton's own testimony. The defense also maintained that Miss Gladue consented to the sexual activity that occurred on both nights. In his closing address to the jury, Defense counsel submitted that it was evident she consented on the second night because she left her clothes in the bathroom, came out naked, and, quote, she's a prostitute and she's consenting to the sex. Counsel maintained that, in any event, quote, Mr. Barton would have obviously believed that she was consenting to the sex, and therefore he could rely on defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent. Counsel stressed that there was no groans of disagreement, in fact, only groans of agreement, and there were no signs that she was in disagreement. Counsel also emphasized that the sexual activity was essentially the same both nights, the only difference being the depth of thrusting and Mr. Barton believes she consented night number one, night number two. The defense conceded several elements of unlawful act manslaughter. In particular, the defense conceded that Mr. Barton caused Miss Gladue's death and the sexual activity in question was inherently dangerous and posed an objectively foreseeable risk that Miss Gladue would suffer bodily harm. However, the defense maintained that this death was a mere accident, which he claimed was antithetical to an intention to cause bodily harm and therefore did not amount to a vitiation of consent. Mr. Barton also admitted to virtually all of the -the after-the-fact conduct revealed in the Crown's case. He acknowledged that he had told a string of lies, but said he was in a state of shock, panic, and fear that his wife and employer would find out that he was involved with a sex worker. He also said he lied because he was suspicious of everyone with whom he spoke. Part 3. Decisions Below Subpart A. Alberta Court of Queen's Bench Justice Grassier, sitting with a jury. Mr. Barton was tried before a judge and jury. Crown and Defense Counsel assisted the trial judge in drafting his final charge to the jury outlining the legal principles to be applied. Following deliberation, the jury acquitted Mr. Barton of first-degree murder and the included offense of unlawful act manslaughter. Subpart B, Alberta Court of Appeal. Chief Justice of Appeal Frazier... Appeal Justices Watson and Martin. The Crown appealed Mr. Barton's acquittal and sought a new trial. It alleged four errors of law in its Notice of Appeal and Factum before the Court of Appeal. 1. Erroneous Jury Instructions on Manslaughter 2. Erroneous Jury Instructions on Motive 3. The Failure to Hold a Section 276 Hearing and 4 erroneous jury instructions that a complainant's consent to sexual activity on a previous occasion could support the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent on a later occasion. Two interveners were granted leave to make submissions on the definition of sexual activity under 273.11, the procedure required under the Section 276 regime, and the meaning of consent from a substantive equality perspective. In lengthy and detailed reasons, the Court of Appeal allowed the Crown's Appeal, identifying a list of errors that, in its view, each independently warranted a new trial. Including 1. Erroneous jury instructions on after-the-fact conduct. 2. Erroneous jury instructions on motive. 3. The failure to conduct a Section 276 hearing. 4. The failure to define the sexual activity in question. 5 the failure to accurately define the required elements of sexual assault, in particular, consent, honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent, and the reasonable steps requirement, and six, the failure to define the elements of unlawful act manslaughter, namely, dangerousness and the mens rea of objectively foreseeable risk of bodily harm. In addition, the Court of Appeal expressed serious concern that national pattern jury charges on sexual offenses contribute to stereotypes, cause persistent analytical problems in applying the law, and exacerbate inequality, leading it to recommend new pattern charges. In the result, the Court of Appeal allowed the Crown's appeal set aside Mr. Barton's acquittal and ordered a new trial on first-degree murder. Mr. Barton now appeals to this court. Part 4. Issues. I would state the main issues on appeal as follows. One, was Mr. Barton denied procedural fairness at the Court of Appeal? Two, did the trial judge err in failing to apply the Section 276 regime, and if so, what consequences followed? Three, did the trial judge err in his instructions on motive? 4. Did the trial judge err in his instructions on the objective fault element of unlawful act manslaughter? 5. Did the trial judge err in his instructions on after-the-fact conduct? If one or more error is shown, then the question becomes whether a new trial is warranted, and if so, on what charge? Part 5. Analysis. Subpart A. Procedural Fairness Principles. Procedural fairness issues weave throughout Mr. Barton's submissions before this court. Accordingly, I will first provide a brief summary of the relevant law on three sets of procedural fairness principles relied on by Mr. Barton. One, the Crown's limited right to appeal an acquittal. Two, the requirements that must be observed by appellate courts when raising new issues. And three, the proper scope of intervener submissions in criminal appeals. I will then turn to the substantive issues on appeal, considering Mr. Barton's procedural arguments as they arise on an issue-by-issue basis. 1. The Crown's Limited Right to Appeal an Acquittal In Canada, the Crown's right to appeal an acquittal is broader than in most other common law jurisdictions. However, as I will explain, it is not without limits. Out of concerns over fairness to the accused, and in particular the principle against double jeopardy, which is enshrined in Section 11H of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the Crown is barred from securing a new trial by advancing a new theory of liability for the first time on appeal. Moreover, as Appeal Justice Doherty explained in Varga, double jeopardy principles suffer even greater harm where the arguments advanced on appeal contradict positions taken by the Crown at trial. In short, a Crown appeal cannot be the means whereby the Crown puts forward a different case than the one it chose to advance at trial. However, the Crown's failure to object to a misdirection in a jury charge does not necessarily preclude an order for a new trial. In particular, the passive inadvertence of Crown counsel at trial does not waive the public interest in a verdict unattained by materially deficient jury instruction. But even so, when assessing whether an alleged error in a jury charge warrants appellate intervention, the failure to object says something about both the overall accuracy of the jury instructions and the seriousness of the alleged misdirection. This is particularly the case where counsel has specifically endorsed the instruction in question. 2. New Issues Raised by Appellate Courts In the Queen and Mian, this court established guidelines governing the circumstances and manner in which appellate courts may raise new issues. New issues are legally and factually distinct from the grounds of appeal raised by the parties, and cannot reasonably be said to stem from the issues as framed by the parties. While appellate courts enjoy jurisdiction to raise new issues, they may do so only to avert the risk of an injustice. Where, for example, there is good reason to believe the result at trial would realistically have differed had the error identified by the appellate court not been made, intervention is warranted. Where an appellate court decides to raise a new issue, it must give notice to the parties and provide them with an opportunity to respond. As a general rule, Notice should be given as soon as is practically possible after the issue crystallizes, and the notice must ensure the parties are sufficiently informed so they may prepare and respond. The form of response required will depend on the particular issue raised by the court. Counsel may wish to address the issue orally, file further written argument, or both. At the end of the day, the underlying concern should be ensuring that the court receives full submissions on the issue, and the primary considerations are the dictates of natural justice and the rule of adi alterum partum, the duty to hear the other side. 3. The proper scope of intervener submissions in criminal appeals. Finally, there is the role of interveners in criminal appeals. As stated in The Queen and Morganteller, The purpose of an intervention is to present the court with submissions which are useful and different from the perspective of a non-party who has a special interest or particular expertise in the subject matter of the appeal. In particular, interveners play a vital role in our justice system by providing unique perspectives and specialized forms of expertise that assist the court in deciding complex issues that have effects transcending the interests of the particular parties before it. These observations remain as true in the criminal context as they are in the civil context. However, interveners must not overstep their proper role, particularly in criminal appeals. In fairness to the accused, they must not assume the role of a third-party Crown prosecutor, nor can they widen or add to the points at issue, particularly when doing so would widen or add to the Crown's grounds of appeal from the acquittal. Appellate courts, in turn, have a duty to enforce these principles and protect the accused's rights to a fair trial under sections 7 and 11D of the Charter by ensuring interveners do not stray beyond their proper and important role. Subpart B. Standard of Review for Reversible Error In Canada, misdirection in a jury charge is an error of law from which the Crown may appeal. When considering arguments of alleged misdirection, the appellate court must review the charge as a whole, from a functional perspective, asking whether the jury was properly, not perfectly, equipped to decide the case, keeping in mind that it is the substance of the charge, not adherence to a set formula, that matters. Alleged errors must be examined in the context of the entire charge and of the trial as a whole. Subpart C. Section 276 and Prior Sexual Activity Evidence 1. A Brief History of the Section 276 Regime Historically, the Code did not place any specific limits on the admissibility of evidence about a complainant's prior sexual activities or the uses to which that evidence could be put. Consequently, there was nothing stopping counsel from adducing such evidence through cross-examination of the complainant and arguing based on myths and stereotypes that were aided and abetted by the common law, that it undermined her credibility or increased the likelihood that she consented to the sexual activity in question because she had a propensity to consent. In this way, evidence of prior sexual activities was used to blacken the character of the complainant, distort the trial process, and undermined the ability of the criminal justice system to effectively and fairly try sexual allegations. In 1982, however, as part of a broader legislative package aimed at protecting the integrity of the person, protecting children and special groups, safeguarding public decency, and eliminating sexual discrimination, Parliament tabled the first rape shield provisions. These provisions restricted the right of defense counsel in proceedings in respect of certain sexual offenses to adduce evidence of a complainant's sexual conduct on other occasions. One of the core objectives of these provisions was to debunk the twin myths, being the myths that unchaste women are one, more likely to have consented to the sexual activity in question, and two, are less worthy of belief. Almost a decade later, in the Queen and Seaboyer, this court struck down section 276 of the code, as it then read, which set out a blanket exclusion of sexual activity evidence subject to three exceptions. The court determined that although the provision had the laudable goals of abolishing the outmoded, sexist use of sexual activity evidence, it overshot the mark, and rendered it admissible evidence which may be essential to the presentation of legitimate defenses, and hence to a fair trial. In its stead, the court articulated common law principles governing the admissibility of sexual activity evidence. In the wake of Seaboyer, Parliament enacted a new Section 276 regime in 1992 through Bill C-49, which ushered in a suite of major reforms to the law on sexual offences in Canada. The animating purpose behind this new regime, aligned with those of its predecessor, were to protect the integrity of the trial by excluding irrelevant and misleading evidence, protect the accused's right to a fair trial, and encourage the reporting of sexual offences by protecting the security and privacy of complainants. It essentially codified the principles set out by this court in Seaboyer and established substantive rules that prevent evidence of a complainant's sexual activities from being used for improper purposes, backed by procedural requirements designed to enforce these rules. This general framework, which survived a constitutional challenge in Durach, remains in place today, albeit in amended form. 2. The Section 276 Regime Section 276.1 of the code reads, Evidence of Complainant's Sexual Activity. one, In Proceedings in Respect of an Offense under Section 151, 152, 153, 153.1, 155, or 159, Subsection 162, or 3, or Section 170, 171, 172, 173, 271, 272, or 273, evidence that the complainant has engaged in sexual activity, whether with the accused or with any other person, is not admissible to support an inference that, by reason of the sexual nature of the activity, the complainant a. is more likely to have consented to the sexual activity that forms the subject matter of the charge, or b. is less worthy of belief. This section gives effect to the holding in Seaboyer that the twin myths identified in paragraphs A and B respectively are simply not relevant at trial, and can severely distort the trial process. It is an expression of the fundamental rule that to be admissible evidence must be relevant to a fact and issue, and confirms that the twin myths simply have no place in a rational and just system of law. These myths are prohibited not only as a matter of social policy, but also as a matter of false logic. However, under Section 276.2, prior sexual activity evidence adduced by or on behalf of the accused is potentially admissible for other purposes where it meets a threefold test. 276.2. In proceedings in respect of an offense referred to in subsection 1, No evidence shall be adduced by or on behalf of the accused that the complainant has engaged in sexual activity other than the sexual activity that forms the subject matter of the charge, whether with the accused or with any other person, unless the judge, provincial court judge or justice, determines, in accordance with the procedures set out in sections 276.1 and 276.2, that the evidence a is of specific instances of sexual activity, B, is relevant to an issue at trial, and 3, has significant probative value that is not substantially outweighed by the danger of prejudice to the proper administration of justice. This provision essentially mirrors the common law principles set out in Seaboyer. Importantly, it indicates that evidence of the complainant's prior sexual activity adduced by or on behalf of the accused is presumptively inadmissible unless after the procedures set out in section 276.1 and 276.2 have been followed, the trial judge rules to the contrary, applying the three-fold test prescribed in section 276, bracket 2. In making this admissibility determination, the trial judge must take into account the factors listed under 276, bracket 3. A. The interests of justice, including the right of the accused to make full answer in defense. B. Society's interest in encouraging the reporting of sexual assault offenses. C. Whether there is a reasonable prospect that the evidence will assist in arriving at a just determination in the case. D. The need to remove from the fact-finding process any discriminatory belief or bias. E. The risk that the evidence may unduly arouse sentiments of prejudice, sympathy, or hostility in the jury. F the potential prejudice to the complainant's personal dignity and right of privacy, g, the right of the complainant and of every individual to personal security and to the full protection and benefit of the law, h, any other factor that the judge, provincial court judge, or justice considers relevant. In addition to providing for substantive rules governing the admissibility of prior sexual activity evidence adduced by or on behalf of the evidence, The Section 276 regime contains procedural components set out in Sections 276.1 to 276.4, which include the following salient provisions. Where the accused seeks to adduce evidence of the complainant's prior sexual activities, the accused must make a written application to the court setting out a. detailed particulars of the evidence the accused seeks to adduce, and b. the relevance of that evidence to an issue at trial. Where the accused submits such an application and the trial judge is satisfied the evidence is capable of being admitted under 276 bracket 2, a hearing must be held. Both the jury and the public must be excluded from this hearing, and the complainant is not compellable. Following the hearing, the judge must provide reasons setting out whether any of the evidence is admissible. If any of the evidence is admissible. Then the trial judge must instruct the jury on the purposes for which that evidence can and cannot be used. Finally, a ruling on the admissibility of prior sexual activity evidence under Section 276 is not necessarily set in stone. There may be circumstances in which it would be appropriate for the trial judge to reopen a Section 276 ruling and hold a new hearing to reconsider the admissibility of prior sexual activity evidence. By way of illustration, where a complainant makes a statement to the police that prior sexual activity occurred but later contradicts that evidence in her testimony at trial, that contradictory testimony would open the door to the defense bringing a renewed Section 276 application seeking to have the prior sexual activity evidence admitted for credibility purposes. By way of illustration, where a complainant makes a statement to the police that prior sexual activity occurred, but later contradicts that evidence in her testimony at trial, that contradictory testimony would open the door to the defense bringing a renewed 276 application, seeking to have the prior sexual activity evidence admitted for credibility purposes despite an initial ruling of inadmissibility. This is but one example. There may be other circumstances in which it would be appropriate for the trial judge to reopen a Section 276 ruling and hold a new hearing to reconsider the admissibility of prior sexual activity evidence. 3. Proceedings Below Turning to the case at hand, in its opening address to the jury, the Crown referred to Miss Gladue as a, quote, prostitute, and explained that she and Mr. Barton struck a working relationship on the night before her death. In addition, without submitting an application under Section 276.11 and 2 of the Code, Mr. Barton testified at length about his sexual activity with Ms. Gladue on the night prior to her death. The Crown did not object, nor did the trial judge order a separate hearing to consider the admissibility and permissible uses of this evidence. Consequently, the evidence went to the jury unedited and without detailed limiting instruction. The Court of Appeal found this to be a serious error. It concluded that the failure to comply with the Section 276 regime led to reversible misdirection in the jury charge on the permissible uses of prior sexual activity evidence and the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent. It held that this error warranted a new trial on first degree murder. 4. Procedural Fairness Argument. Mr. Barton submits that as a matter of procedural fairness, the Section 276 issue was not properly raised before the Court of Appeal. Respectfully, I disagree. While the Crown did not object to Mr. Barton's testimony about Miss Gladue's prior sexual activity, in my view, its failure to do so was not fatal. The ultimate responsibility for enforcing compliance with the mandatory Section 276 regime lies squarely with the trial judge, not with the Crown. After all, it is the trial judge and not the Crown who is the gatekeeper in a criminal trial. Moreover, I simply cannot accept that a complainant's dignity, equality, and privacy rights, which the Section 276 regime is meant to protect, may be waived by a mere Crown inadvertence. There is nothing in the record suggesting that the Crown made a deliberate attempt to avoid the application of the Section 276 regime, and indeed it had no reason to. It certainly gained no tactical advantage as a result of non-compliance. Quite the opposite. And in any event, given the important objectives underlying Section 276, the Crown should refrain from commenting on complainant's prior sexual history unless necessary. Having settled the procedural fairness aspect of the Section 276 issue, I turn to its substance. 5. The applicability of the Section 276 regime. The first substantive issue is one of scope. Can the Section 276 regime apply in a case where the offense charged, here murder under Section 231-5C and 235-1, is not one of the offenses listed in 276-1? This issue raises a question of statutory interpretation. The modern approach to statutory interpretation provides that the words of an act are to be read in their entire context and in their grammatical and ordinary sense harmoniously with the scheme of the act, the object of the act, and the intention of Parliament. Beginning with the text, the opening words of section 276 bracket 1 and 2, Proceedings in Respect of a Listed Offence are of the widest possible scope, and are probably the widest of any expression intended to convey some connection between two related subject matters. These words import such meanings as in relation to, with reference to, or in connection with. Parliament would not have chosen this exceptionally broad language if it intended to limit the application of the 276 regime to proceedings in which a listed offence was expressly charged narrower language, such as, in a prosecution for, a listed offence, or where a person is charged with, a listed offence, was equally available. Yet Parliament declined to adopt those narrower formulations and instead chose a much broader one. That choice must be given effect. Turning to purpose, the Section 276 regime's objects, which include protecting the integrity of the trial by excluding irrelevant and misleading evidence, protecting the accused's rights to a fair trial, and encouraging the reporting of sexual offenses by protecting the security and privacy of complainants are fundamental. Giving the Section 276 regime a broad, generous interpretation that does not unduly restrict the regime's scope of application would best achieve these objects. Moreover, Imposing a rigid requirement that a listed offense must be expressly charged before the 276 regime can apply would put form over substance. The regime's applicability would turn on the way in which the prosecutor drafts the charging document, not on whether, in substance, a listed offense is implicated in the proceeding. If a listed offense is implicated in the proceeding, surely it makes no difference that the Crown did not particularize that offense in the charging document. With these points in mind, I am of the view that the Section 276 regime applies to any proceeding in which an offense listed in Section 276 has some connection to the offense charged, even if no listed offense was particularized in the charging document. For example, this broad relational test would be satisfied where the listed offence is the predicate offence for the offence charged or an indicated offence of the offence charged. In Mr. Barton's case, the Section 276 regime was engaged because the offence charged first-degree murder under subsections 231.5c and 2351, was premised on sexual assault with a weapon contrary to Section 272, which is an offence listed in Section 2761 that alone was sufficient to engage the Section 276 regime. In this case, it is plain that the proceeding implicated an offence listed in Section 276 However, that will not always be the case. With that in mind, going forward, where there is uncertainty about whether the Section 276 regime applies to the proceeding in question, the trial judge should raise that issue with the parties at the earliest opportunity after giving the parties the opportunity to make submissions, issue a ruling on the matter. If the trial judge holds that the Section 276 regime applies, then the defense may require an adjournment to prepare the necessary application under 276.11 and 2 to have the proposed evidence admitted. The foregoing analysis points to the conclusion that Mr. Barton's testimony about Ms. Gladue's sexual activity on the night before her death was subject to the Section 276 regime. However, Mr. Barton stresses that Section 276 applies only in respect of evidence adduced by or on behalf of the accused and submits that the Section 276 regime therefore does not apply to evidence adduced by or on behalf of the Crown. Based on this premise, he maintains that by referring to Miss Gladue as a prostitute in its opening address and explaining that she and Mr. Barton struck a working relationship on the night before her death, the Crown opened the door to wholesale admission of Mr. Barton's evidence about Miss Gladue's past sexual activities without having to first sift that evidence through the Section 276 filter. He also says that the Crown's questioning of witnesses about Miss Gladue's relationship with him and about his question to his colleague about whether he wanted a piece of Miss Gladue had the same effect. Respectfully, I cannot agree. First, Section 276 which confirms the irrelevance of the twin myths, is categorical in nature and applies irrespective of which party has led the prior sexual activity evidence. Thus, regardless of the evidence adduced by the Crown, Mr. Barton's evidence was inadmissible to support either of the twin myths. Moving to Section 276.2. While it is true that this provision applies only in respect of evidence adduced by or on behalf of the accused, the common law principles articulated in Seaboyer speak to the general admissibility of prior sexual activity evidence. Given that the reasoning dangers inherent in prior sexual activity evidence are potentially present regardless of which party adduces the evidence, trial judges should follow this court's guidance in Seaboyer to determine the admissibility of Crown-led prior sexual activity evidence in a voir dire. However, the limited information conveyed in the Crown's opening address did not, in my view, exclude Section 276-2's application to Mr. Barton's detailed testimony about Miss Gladue's sexual activity on the night before her death, which went well beyond the basic narrative recounted by the Crown. Nor did the Crown's limited questioning of witnesses on Miss Gladue's relationship with Mr. Barton and Mr. Barton's question to his colleague about whether he wanted a piece of Miss Gladue have this effect. These were mere drops in the expansive pool of information Mr. Barton flooded the jury with through his testimony. In short, the Crown did not give him a free pass and cloak his evidence with immunity from the Section 276 regime. It follows that before adducing evidence of Miss Gladue's sexual activity on the night before her death, Mr. Barton was required to make an application under Section 276.11 and 2. Similarly, the trial judge was required to determine whether that evidence was capable of being admitted under Section 276.2 and, if so, hold an in-camera hearing to determine the admissibility of that evidence. Following the issuance of reasons, if any of the evidence was deemed admissible, then the trial judge would have been required to issue a detailed instruction to the jury identifying the purposes for which the evidence could and could not be used. Yet none of these requirements was observed. While this noncompliance may have been advantageous to Mr. Barton, as his evidence was shielded from scrutiny under Section 276, it came at the expense of Miss Gladue's dignity and privacy, which continued despite her death. The truth seeking process and trial fairness, which must be assessed from both the perspective of the accused and of society more broadly. As this court stated in Derrich, an accused does not have the right to adduce misleading evidence to support illegitimate inferences, and thereby distort the truth seeking function of the trial process. Finally, since the procedural requirements under Sections 276.1 to 276.4 were not observed, I am of the view that it would be both unwise and practically unworkable for this Court to speculate about what prior sexual activity evidence would have been admitted, and for what purposes, had a Section 276 hearing been held. However, assuming without deciding that at least some of Mr. Burton's evidence was admissible, a careful limiting instruction was essential to instruct the jury on the permissible and impermissible uses of that evidence. Because that did not happen, the jury was left adrift in a sea of dangerous and impermissible inferences. Further, as I will develop, the failure to observe the requirements of the Section 276 regime had ripple effects, most acutely in the instructions on the defense that is commonly associated with 276. The Defense of Honest but Mistaken Belief in Communicated Consent Subpart D Instructions on the Defense of Honest but Mistaken Belief in Communicated Consent 1. Legal Principles One of the ways in which an accused may respond to a charge of sexual assault is to rely on the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent. To lay the foundation for the analysis that follows, It will first be useful to briefly review several key principles relating to this defense. Namely, A, the role consent plays in sexual assault analysis, B, the necessity of having a belief in communicated consent in order to raise the relevant defense, C, mistakes of law, and D, the reasonable steps requirement. I will address these four points in turn. A, the role of consent in the sexual assault analysis. A conviction for sexual assault, like any other true crime, requires that the Crown prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused committed the actus reus and had the necessary mens rea. A person commits the actus reus of sexual assault if he touches another person in a sexual way without her consent. The mens rea consists of the intention to touch and knowing of or being reckless of or willfully blind to a lack of consent on the part of the person touched. Consent is defined in Section 273.11 of the Code as the voluntary agreement of the complainant to engage in the sexual activity in question. It is the conscious agreement of the complainant to engage in every sexual act in a particular encounter, and it must be freely given. This consent must exist at the time the sexual activity in question occurs and it can be revoked at any time. Further, as Section 273.11 makes clear, consent is not considered in the abstract. Rather, it must be linked to the sexual activity in question, which encompasses the specific physical sex act, the sexual nature of the activity, and the identity of the partner, though it does not include conditions or qualities of the physical act, such as birth control measures or the presence of sexually transmitted diseases. Consent is treated differently at each stage of the analysis. For purposes of the actus reus, consent means that the complainant in her mind wanted the sexual touching to take place. Thus, at this stage, the focus is placed squarely on the complainant's state of mind, and the accused perception of that state of mind is irrelevant. Accordingly, if the complainant testifies that she did not consent and the trier of fact accepts this evidence, then there was no consent, plain and simple. At this point, the actus reus is complete. The complainant need not express her lack of consent or revocation of consent for the actus reus to be established. For purposes of the mens rea, and specifically for purposes of the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent, Consent means that the complainant had affirmatively communicated by words or conduct her agreement to engage in the sexual activity with the accused. Hence, the focus at this stage shifts to the mental state of the accused, and the question becomes whether the accused honestly believed the complainant effectively said yes through her words and or actions. B. The necessity of having an honest belief in communicated consent. This court has consistently referred to the relevant defense as being premised on an honest but mistaken belief in consent and the code itself refers to the accused belief in consent. However, this court's jurisprudence is clear that in order to make out the relevant defense, the accused must have an honest but mistaken belief that the complainant actually communicated consent, whether by words or conduct. As Justice Luray Dubé stated in PARC, as a practical matter, therefore, the principal considerations that are relevant to this defense are one, the complainant's actual communicative behavior, and two, the totality of the admissible and relevant evidence explaining how the accused perceived that behavior to communicate consent. Everything else is ancillary. Therefore, in my view, it is appropriate to refine the judicial lexicon and refer to the defense more accurately as an honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent. This refinement is intended to focus all justice system participants on the crucial question of communication of consent and avoid inadvertently straying into the forbidden territory of assumed or implied consent. Focusing on the accused honest but mistaken belief in the communication of consent has practical consequences. Most significantly, in seeking to rely on the complainant's prior sexual activities in support of a defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent, the accused must be able to explain how and why that evidence informed his honest but mistaken belief that she communicated consent to the sexual activity in question at the time it occurred. For example, in some cases, Prior sexual activities may establish legitimate expectations about how consent is communicated between the parties, thereby shaping the accused perception of communicated consent to the sexual activity in question at the time it occurred. American scholar Michelle Anderson puts it this way, Prior negotiation between the complainant and the defendant regarding the specific acts at issue or customs and practices about those acts should be admissible, These negotiations, customs, and practices between the parties reveal their legitimate expectations on the incident in question. These negotiations would not, however, include an agreement involving broad, advanced consent to any and all manner of sexual activity. As I will explain, a belief that the complainant gave broad, advanced consent to sexual activity of an undefined scope will afford the accused no defense, as that belief is premised on a mistake of law, not fact. However, great care must be taken not to slip into impermissible propensity reasoning. The accused cannot rest his defence on the false logic that the complainant's prior sexual activities, by reason of their sexual nature, made her more likely to have consented to the sexual activity in question, and on this basis, he believes she consented. This is the first of the twin myths which is prohibited under section 2761A of the code. C. Mistakes of law. A mistake of fact defense operates where the accused mistakenly perceived facts that negate or raise a reasonable doubt about the fault element of the offense. Honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent falls within this category of defenses. But the law draws a distinction between mistakes of fact and mistakes of law. As a general rule, the latter offers no excuse. As the Court of Appeal in this case put it, no one in this country is entitled to their own law. Therefore, to the extent an accused defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent rests on a mistake of law, including what counts as consent from a legal perspective, Rather than a mistake of fact, the defense is of no avail. For present purposes, three consent-related mistakes of law are particularly relevant. Implied consent, broad advance consent, and propensity to consent. I will address each of these concepts in turn. Implied consent, chuck The specious defense of implied consent rests on the assumption that unless a woman protests or resists, She should be deemed to consent. Ewan Chuck makes clear that this concept has no place in Canadian law. As Justice Major stated for the majority, a belief that silence, passivity, or ambiguous conduct constitutes consent is a mistake of law and provides no defense. It is also a mistake of law to infer that the complainant's consent was implied by the circumstances or by the relationship between the accused and the complainant. In short, it is an error of law, not fact, to assume that unless and until a woman says no, she has implicitly given her consent to any and all sexual activity. Broad Advanced Consent, J.A. Broad Advanced Consent refers to the legally erroneous notion that the complainant agreed to future sexual activity of an undefined scope. As summarized in JA, the definition of consent under Section 273.11 suggests that the consent of the complainant must be specifically directed to each and every sexual act, negating the argument that broad advance consent is what Parliament had in mind. And this court has also interpreted this provision as requiring the complainant to consent to the activity at the time it occurs. Thus, a belief that the complainant gave broad advance consent to sexual activity of an undefined scope will afford the accused no defense, as that belief is premised on a mistake of law, not fact. Propensity to Consent, see Boyer The law prohibits the inference that the complainant's prior sexual activities by reason of their sexual nature, make it more likely that she consented to sexual activity in question. This is the first of the twin myths. Accordingly, an accused belief that the complainant's prior sexual activities, by reason of their sexual nature, made it more likely that she was consenting to the sexual activity in question, is a mistake of law. D. The reasonable steps requirement. Finally, The availability of the defence of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent is not unlimited. Section 273.2 of the Code, which formed part of the 1992 reforms to Canada's sexual assault laws, placed important limits on the defence. The section reads, Where belief in consent is not a defence. 273.2. It is not a defense to a charge under section 271, 272, or 273 that the accused believed that the complainant consented to the activity that forms the subject matter of the charge, where a. The accused belief arose from the accused self-induced toxication or recklessness or willful blindness, or b. The accused did not take reasonable steps in the circumstances known to the accused at the time to ascertain that the complainant was consenting. As is apparent, Section 273.2 applies in respect of various sexual assault offenses. Sexual Assault under Section 272, Sexual Assault under Section 271, Sexual Assault with a Weapon Involving Threats to a Third Party or Causing Bodily Harm under Section 272, and Aggravated Sexual Assault under Section 273. The jurisprudence on the Reasonable Steps requirement under Section 273.2b remains underdeveloped and academic commentators have highlighted the need for greater clarity. With that in mind, although the trial judge's limited instructions on reasonable steps were not raised by the Crown as a ground of appeal from Mr. Barton's acquittal, a few comments and observations are warranted to promote greater clarity in the law and provide guidance for future cases including the new trial on unlawful act manslaughter that, for reasons I will explain, is required in this case. The Reasonable Steps Requirement as a Precondition with Objective and Subjective Dimensions Section 273.2b imposes a precondition to the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent. No Reasonable Steps. No Defense. It has both objective and subjective dimensions. The accused must take steps that are objectively reasonable, and the reasonableness of those steps must be assessed in light of the circumstances known to the accused at the time. Notably, however, Section 273.2b does not require the accused to take all reasonable steps, unlike the analogous restriction on the defense of mistaken belief in legal age imposed under Section 150.14 of the Code. THE PURPOSE OF THE REASONABLE STEPS REQUIREMENT The purpose of the reasonable steps requirement has been expressed in different ways. The authors of Manning, Mewitt, and Sankoff criminal law state that Section 273.2b of the Code seeks to protect the security of the person and equality of women who compromise the huge majority of sexual assault victims by ensuring as much as possible that there is clarity on the part of both participants to the sexual act. Appeal Justice Abella, as she then was, wrote in Cornejo that the reasonable steps requirement replaces the assumptions traditionally and inappropriately associated with passivity and silence. Professor Elizabeth Shee puts it in this way, Bill C-49's reasonable steps requirement was intended to criminalize sexual assaults committed by men who claim mistake without any effort to ascertain the women's consent or whose belief in consent relies on self-serving, misogynist beliefs. The common thread running through each of these descriptions is this. The reasonable steps requirement rejects the outmoded idea that women can be taken to consenting unless they say no. What can and cannot constitute reasonable steps. Keeping in mind that consent is defined under Section 273.11 of the Code as the voluntary agreement of the complainant to engage in the sexual activity in question, what can constitute reasonable steps to ascertain consent? In my view, the reasonable steps inquiry is highly fact-specific, and it would be unwise and likely unhelpful to attempt to draw up an exhaustive list of reasonable steps or obscure the words of the statute by supplementing or replacing them with different language. That said, it is possible to identify certain things that clearly are not reasonable steps. For example, steps based on rape myths or stereotypical assumptions about women and consent cannot constitute reasonable steps. As such, an accused cannot point to his reliance on the complainant's silence, passivity, or ambiguous conduct as a reasonable step to ascertain consent, as a belief that any of these factors constitute consent is a mistake of law. Similarly, it would be perverse to think that a sexual assault could constitute a reasonable step. Accordingly, an accused attempt to test the waters by recklessly or knowingly engaging in non-consensual sexual touching cannot be considered a reasonable step. This is a particularly acute issue in the context of unconscious or semi-conscious complainants. It is also possible to identify circumstances in which the threshold for satisfying the reasonable steps requirement will be elevated. For example, the more invasive the sexual activity in question and the greater risk posed to the health and safety of those involved, common sense suggests a reasonable person would take greater care in ascertaining consent. The same holds true where the accused and the complainant are unfamiliar with one another, thereby raising the risk of miscommunications, misunderstandings, and mistakes. At the end of the day, the reasonable steps inquiry is highly contextual, and what is required will vary from case to case. Overall, in approaching the reasonable steps analysis, trial judges and juries should take a purposive approach keeping in mind that the reasonable steps requirement reaffirms that the accused cannot equate silence, passivity, or ambiguity with the communication of consent. Moreover, trial judges and juries should be guided by the need to protect and preserve every person's bodily integrity, sexual autonomy, and human dignity. Finally, if the reasonable steps requirement is to have any meaningful impact, it must be applied with care. Mere lip service will not do. The Distinction Between Reasonable Steps and Reasonable Grounds Finally, the concept of reasonable steps to ascertain consent under Section 273.2b of the Code must be distinguished from the concept of reasonable grounds to support an honest belief in consent under Section 265.4. The latter section provides that in the context of an alleged assault, whether sexual or otherwise, where the accused claims he believed the complainant consented to the conduct in question, and the trial judge is satisfied that there is sufficient evidence and that, if believed by the jury, the evidence would constitute a defense, the trial judge shall instruct the jury, when reviewing all the evidence relating to the determination of the honesty of the accused belief, to consider the presence or absence of reasonable grounds for that belief." This provision rests on the idea that as the accused asserted belief in consent becomes less reasonable, it becomes increasingly doubtful that the asserted belief was honestly held. In other words, where the accused is charged with some form of assault, the presence or absence of reasonable grounds is simply a factor to be considered in assessing the honesty of the accused asserted belief in consent in accordance with section 265.4. By contrast, where the accused is charged with a sexual offense under Sections 271, 272, or 273, a failure to take reasonable steps is fatal to the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent by virtue of Section 273.2b. With this in mind, in the context of a charge under Sections 271, 272, or 273, where the accused asserts an honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent. If either, one, there is no evidence upon which the trier of fact could find that the accused took reasonable steps to ascertain consent, or two, the Crown proves beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused failed to take reasonable steps to ascertain consent, then there would be no reason to consider the presence or absence of reasonable grounds to support an honest belief in consent under 265.4 since the accused would be legally barred from raising the defense due to the operation of Section 273.2b. Finally, where the conceptual distinction between reasonable steps under Section 273.2b and reasonable grounds under Section 265.4 remains valid, as a practical matter it is hard to conceive of a situation in which reasonable steps would not also constitute reasonable grounds for the purpose of assessing the honesty of the accused's asserted belief. 2. Instructions on the Defense of Honest but Mistaken Belief in Communicated Consent At trial, Mr. Barton relied on the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent. His testimony about Miss Gladue's prior sexual activities featured prominently in his defense. It was this evidence that formed the foundation for his contention that the sexual activity on the second night was part of a continuing commercial transaction that began with the previous night's supposedly similar sexual activity with an agreement to pay the same price on both nights. The trial judge instructed the jury that there was evidence before them that raised the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent. He explained that this defense is a mistake of fact defense and noted that they should consider whether there were any reasonable grounds for Mr. Barton's belief. He also told the jury that in assessing this defense, they should consider, among other things, Mr. Barton's testimony about his perceptions of Miss Gladue's verbal and nonverbal responses to the activity he said took place on the second night, as well as Mr. Barton's testimony about what occurred on the first night, and in particular his testimony that he and Miss Gladue had similar sexual encounters on that night. He further instructed the jury on reasonable steps under Section 273.2b of the Code, stating, You should consider whether the Crown has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Barton failed to take reasonable steps in the circumstances known to him at the time to satisfy himself that Ms. Gladue was consenting to the type of sexual activity he described in his testimony. However, the trial judge did not indicate that the reasonable steps requirement is a precondition to the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent. 3. Mistakes of Law in Mr. Barton's Defense To the extent Mr. Barton may have honestly perceived Miss Gladue's consent due to a subjective misunderstanding of the law rather than a misperception of the facts, the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent would afford him no shelter. As I will develop, in my respectful view, the trial judge in this case erred by failing to inoculate the jury against mistakes of law masquerading as mistakes of fact. In particular, the legally erroneous notions of implied consent, broad advance consent, and propensity to consent discussed above, each haunted the courtroom. These were issues raised by the Crown, both at trial and before the Court of Appeal, and I am not persuaded that any procedural fairness concerns preclude this court from addressing them. Mr. Barton's defense rested largely on the notion that the sexual activity he said occurred on the first night led him to believe Miss Gladue consented on the second night. In particular, he gave evidence that he and Miss Gladue agreed on the price of $60 for everything on the first night. That they agreed on the same price on the second night and that she knew what she was coming for he considered the two nights as forming part of a continuing commercial transaction with supposedly similar sexual activities occurring on both nights further defense counsel stressed that she's a prostitute and she's consenting to the sex and that there were no groans of disagreement in fact only groans of agreement and there were no signs that she was in disagreement he reasonably believed that she was consenting. Respectfully, Mr. Barton's defense raised the specter of several mistakes of law. First of all, a belief that the absence of signs of disagreement could be substituted for affirmative communication of consent is a mistake of law. As already explained, implied consent does not exist under Canadian sexual assault law. Further, a belief that prior similar sexual activities between the accused and the complainant, the complainant's status as a sex worker, or the accused's own speculation about what was going through the complainant's mind could be substituted for communicated consent to the sexual activity in question at the time is a mistake of law. As a matter of law, consent must be specifically renewed and communicated for each sexual act. Moreover, a belief that the complainant could give broad, advance consent to whatever the accused wanted to do to her is a mistake of law. Finally, the inference that the complainant's past sexual activities, by reason of their sexual nature, may make it more likely that she consented to the sexual activity in question, the first of the twin myths, is also a mistake of law. With respect, I am of the view that it was incumbent on the trial judge to caution the jury against acting on these mistakes of law. The absence of such an instruction had an immediate impact on the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent, as it allowed the defense to proceed while these mistakes of law were left unaddressed, thereby leaving the jurors without the necessary tools to engage in a proper analysis." this error was inextricably linked to the failure to hold a Section 276 hearing, which would have subjected the admissibility and permissible uses of the evidence of Ms. Gladue's prior sexual history to rigorous scrutiny and assisted in filtering out the mistakes of law raised by Mr. Barton's defense. 4. Additional Guidance on Error of Reality Test and Reasonable Steps. Strictly speaking, the foregoing analysis is sufficient to demonstrate that the trial judge's instructions on the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent were deficient. However, in the interest of providing guidance for future cases, including the new trial on unlawful act manslaughter, that, for reasons I will explain later in these reasons, is necessary in this case, I would add the following brief comments. An accused who wishes to rely on the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent must first demonstrate that there is an air of reality to that defense. This necessarily requires that the trial judge consider whether there is any evidence upon which a reasonable trier of fact acting judicially could find, one, that the accused took reasonable steps to ascertain consent, and two, that the accused honestly believed the complainant communicated consent. This court recently confirmed that where there is no evidence upon which the trier of fact could find that the accused took reasonable steps to ascertain consent, the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent must not be left with the jury. A number of provincial appellate decisions, including the Court of Appeals decision in this case, have reached the same conclusion. Accordingly, If there is no evidence upon which the trier of fact could find that the accused took reasonable steps to ascertain consent, then the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent has no air of reality and must not be left with the jury. This threshold analysis serves an important purpose. It keeps from the jury defenses that lack a sufficient evidentiary foundation, thereby avoiding the risk that the jury might improperly give effect to a defective defense. As such, contrary to what occurred at trial in this case, the error of reality test should not be ignored. By contrast, if there is an error of reality to the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent, including the reasonable steps requirement, then the defense should be left with the jury. The onus would then shift to the Crown to negative the defense, which could be achieved by proving beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused failed to take reasonable steps the trial judge should instruct the jury as such, making it clear that the reasonable steps requirement is a precondition to the defense. In addition, the trial judge should explain, as a matter of law, the type of evidence that can and cannot constitute reasonable steps, making sure any steps that are grounded in mistakes of law are relegated to the latter category. Where the Crown does not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused failed to take reasonable steps, that does not lead automatically to an acquittal. In those circumstances, the trial judge should instruct the jury that they are required as a matter of law to go on to consider whether the Crown has nonetheless proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused did not have an honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent. This requirement flows from the fact that the defense is ultimately one of an honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent, not one of reasonable steps. Ultimately, if the Crown fails to disprove the defense beyond a reasonable doubt, then the accused would be entitled to an acquittal. Five, determination of the sexual activity in question. To provide guidance for future cases, I wish to make several observations on the trial judge's instructions to the jury on the sexual activity in question. At trial, the defense conceded that Mr. Barton caused Miss Gladue's death. With that point conceded, A key issue for the jury was what sexual activity took place. That is, what was the sexual activity in question under section 273.11 of the code. The answer to that question would then frame the rest of the analysis. Did Ms. Gladue subjectively consent to that particular sexual activity? If not, did Mr. Barton honestly believe she communicated consent to that particular sexual activity at the time it occurred? several parts of the trial judge's charge suggested to the jury that they were effectively bound to accept Mr. Barton's version of events regarding the sexual activity in question. For example, the trial judge stated, for there have to have been a sexual assault, you will have to decide if Miss Gladue consented to the type of sexual activity described and demonstrated by Mr. Barton in his testimony. There is some evidence that Cindy Gladue consented to the application of some force by Mr. Barton including sexual activity and to the activity described by Mr. Barton in his testimony. You should consider whether the Crown has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Barton failed to take reasonable steps in the circumstances known to him at the time to satisfy himself that Miss Gladue was consenting to the type of sexual activity he described in his testimony. When you are considering whether Mr. Barton honestly believed that Cindy Gladue was capable of consenting to the touching described by Mr. Barton in his testimony. Respectfully, these instructions were problematic. In particular, rather than suggesting that Mr. Barton's testimony was gospel, the trial judge ought to have clarified for the jury that in determining the sexual activity in question, they should look to the whole of the evidence, both direct and circumstantial, and that they were not bound to accept Mr. Barton's evidence simply because he was the only witness to the sexual activity in question who was alive to testify. With that in mind, there was a sound basis in the evidence to question the veracity of Mr. Barton's account of the sexual activity in question. To cite just three examples. An expert bloodstain analyst noted that while bloodstains were found at the center of the bed, which was consistent with the Crown's theory that Miss Gladue was lying in the middle of the bed when the sexual activity in question occurred, none were found on the corner of the bed where Mr. Barton said Miss Gladue was sitting. Toxicology evidence placed Miss Gladue's blood alcohol concentration at the time of death over four times the legal limit to drive, which again was consistent with the Crown's theory that she was lying incapacitated in the middle of the bed and inconsistent with Mr. Barton's evidence that she was only moderately intoxicated. And the sexual activity in question was evidently so forceful and violent as to be lethal, which calls into question whether Miss Gladue consented and acted in the way Mr. Barton described. However, the Crown did not appeal on this basis, so for reasons of procedural fairness, I will not consider whether the deficient instructions on the sexual activity in question amounted to misdirection. Subpart E, instructions on motive. One, motive. Motive is ulterior intention. It is the end for which the crime is committed. In most criminal matters, to establish the mental element of the offense the crown need not prove motive. Instead, what it must prove is intent, i.e. the exercise of free will to use particular means to produce a particular result. As explained in Lewis, where motive does not form an essential element of the offense, the necessity of charging a jury on motive falls along a continuum. At one end of the continuum are cases where the evidence as to identify the offender is purely circumstantial, and proof of motive on the part of the Crown is so essential that referencing must be made to motive in charging the jury. At the other end of the continuum are cases where there is proven absence of motive. In such cases, the trial judge must charge on motive, as the proven absence of motive is ordinarily an important factor favoring the accused. But between these two poles the necessity to charge on motive depends upon the course of the trial and the nature and probative value of the evidence adduced, and in these cases, a substantial discretion must be left to the trial judge. Moreover, motive is always a matter of fact and evidence, and therefore primarily for the judge and jury, rather than an appellate tribunal and trial judges must be given reasonable latitude in charging the jury. Accordingly, the trial judge's decision as to whether to charge on motive should not be lightly reversed. In addition, trial judges have discretion as to how to deal with issues relating to motive, and there is no formula that must be followed. 2. Proceedings Below. At trial, the Crown led no evidence of motive, and the trial judge rejected the defense's submission that there was a proven absence of motive. There was thus no proven absence of motive, but rather an absence of proven motive. The charge on motive read, Motive is a reason why somebody does something. Proof of motive for the commission of an offense may be of assistance in determining whether Mr. Barton is guilty or not guilty of the offense charged or an included offense. The Crown is not required to prove motive, and it introduced no evidence of motive. In deciding whether people are guilty of an offense, what generally matters is what they did and whether they did it intentionally, not their reasons for doing it although motive or the absence of motive may be of assistance in some cases. It is for you to decide how much or how little you will rely on lack of motive to help you decide this case. If you conclude that Bradley Barton had no motive to commit a particular offense, it would be an important fact for you to consider. It is a factor that might support Mr. Barton's denial of guilt and raise a reasonable doubt that the Crown has proven its case. Members of the jury you should give the evidence of absence of motive the weight you think it deserves. Lack of motive is only a factor that may persuade you one way or the other whether Mr. Barton is guilty or not guilty. You must consider the issue of motive in the context of all of the evidence. The Court of Appeal held that the trial judge should not have given the jury any instruction on motive. The court reasoned that motive was simply irrelevant to the issues at play and the charge left the jury with a false impression that the Crown's case was deficient because it had failed to prove motive. Moreover, the charge was, in the court's view, one-sided. It held the erroneous instructions on motive affected both the charge of first-degree murder and the lesser and included offense of manslaughter. 3. Discussion Respectfully, I cannot accede to the Crown's submission that the trial judge erred in his instructions on motive— before this court, the parties have not argued that the absence of proven motive was relevant to the unlawful act manslaughter offense, and I need not comment further on that point. However, in my view, motive was a relevant consideration bearing upon whether Mr. Barton intended to seriously harm or kill Miss Gladue, which would go to the fault element for murder. In these circumstances, since there was neither a proven motive nor a proven absence of motive, It fell within the trial judge's substantial discretion to charge on motive, and therefore this court should defer to his discretionary decision to do so. Nor, in my view, was the charge on motive so unbalanced as to amount to misdirection. As indicated, the trial judge instructed the jury that if they found a lack of motive, then that would be an important fact for them to consider. However, at the same time, he made it perfectly clear that the crown is not required to prove motive, that motive or the absence of motive may be of assistance, and that it was up to the jury to decide how much or how little it would rely on lack of motive. In my view, while the motive instructions could have been clearer, when read fairly and as a whole, they were reasonably balanced and did not place undue emphasis on the importance of establishing motive or suggest that proving motive was essential for a conviction. Relatedly, While I am inclined to agree with the Court of Appeal that cases may arise in which the trial judge should explain to the jury how a generalized purpose or attitude, for example animus towards women sex workers or indigenous women, including a desire to use sex workers or indigenous women in an objectifying or dehumanizing manner for personal gratification, could qualify as motive, in my respectful view, this was not one of those cases. I say this because the Crown did not argue at trial that there was any evidence that Mr. Burton had any such generalized purpose or attitude on which the jury ought to be instructed. Accordingly, I would not accede to the argument that the trial judge's charge on motive constituted a reversible error. Subpart F. Instructions on the Objective Fault Element of Unlawful Act Manslaughter. 1. Proceedings Below. The fault element of unlawful act manslaughter consists of objective foreseeability of the risk of bodily harm, which is neither trivial nor transitory in the context of a dangerous act. An objectively dangerous act is one that is likely to subject another person to danger of harm or injury. At trial, the defense conceded that clearly the act was dangerous. It caused death. The Crown accepted that it would be appropriate to instruct the jury that if they are satisfied that Mr. Barton committed an unlawful act, then it was implicit that the act was dangerous. In addition, the defense requested that the language of objectively foreseeable bodily harm be removed from the charge, and the Crown agreed to this language being taken out. However, on appeal, the Crown reversed its position— arguing that the instructions on dangerousness were deficient and the trial judge's failure to render the objective fault element of unlawful act manslaughter unfairly minimized its expert evidence, particularly the expert opinion that if Miss Gladue's injury was caused by insertion of one's fingers and hand up into her vagina, it would have taken such force that an independent witness would know you're going to hurt that person. The Court of Appeal accepted the Crown's position on appeal. 2. Discussion. Before this court, Mr. Barton submits that the Court of Appeal should not have entertained the Crown's submission on this point. I agree. In my respectful view, the Crown had to live with the decision it made at trial regarding the instructions on the objective fault element of unlawful act manslaughter. Subpart G. Instructions on After-the-Fact Conduct. 1. Proceedings Below. At trial, the Crown argued that Mr. Barton's after-the-fact conduct betrayed his consciousness of guilt for having committed an offense and belied his claim that Miss Gladue's death was a mere accident, though the Crown conceded that the evidence was irrelevant to whether he had the requisite intent for murder. The alternative inference urged by Mr. Barton was that his actions were motivated by his shock, panic, and fear that his wife and employer would discover he was involved with a prostitute. He also maintained that his string of lies was a result of his inability to trust anyone. In his charge on consciousness of guilt, the trial judge instructed the jury not to infer that Mr. Barton is guilty of any offense as a result of his after-the-fact conduct, but that conduct may be used to assess his claim that Cindy Gladue's injury was an accident. This evidence might only be used to draw an inference relating to Miss Gladue's injuries being accidental he did not instruct the jury that they could consider Mr. Barton's after-the-fact conduct in assessing his overall credibility. The Court of Appeal held that these instructions were deficient in several ways. Mainly, one, they failed to instruct the jury to consider Mr. Barton's after-the-fact conduct in evaluating his overall credibility. And two, they impermissibly confined the permissible uses of the -the after-the-fact conduct evidence to rebutting the defense of accident. On the latter point, the Court of Appeal considered that a key word was missing from the following sentence in the charge. You cannot infer that Mr. Barton is guilty of any specific offense as a result of his after-the-fact conduct, but it may be used to access his claim that Cindy Gladue's injury was an accident. The word specific was required because the jury charge was intended to communicate to the jury that they could not infer from Mr. Burton's after-the-fact conduct that he thought he committed murder, as opposed to some other offense. The Court of Appeal considered that this omission would have left the jury with the mistaken impression that after-the-fact conduct evidence could not be used to infer guilt at all. The Court of Appeal held that these two errors warranted a new trial on first-degree murder. 2. Discussion In my respectful view, The Court of appeal should not have ordered a new trial on the -the after-the-fact conduct issue. This conclusion flows from two sets of procedural fairness principles reviewed above. One, the Crown's limited right to appeal and acquittal, and two, the requirements that must be observed by appellate courts when raising new issues. I will apply these principles in turn. First, the Crown was actively involved in drafting the jury charge and in fact requested an instruction nearby identical to language that, according to the Court of Appeal, amounted to reversible misdirection. Further, at no point did the Crown request a specific instruction directing the jury to consider Mr. Barton's after-the-fact conduct in assessing his credibility. Instead, the Crown actively assisted in drafting the charge, vetted the final draft, and did not object. In short, the Crown not only gave its blessing to the alleged error, it largely created it. As Appeal Justice Doherty wrote in The Queen and Bouchard, when the trial judge's instructions are consistent with the instructions worked out by counsel and the trial judge in the pre-charge conference, and counsel has no objections after the charge is delivered, it is an understatement to describe counsel's silence as merely a failure to object. Moreover, the crown did not target the instructions on after-the-fact conduct in its notice of appeal or factum before the court of appeal. Instead, as I will explain, the court of appeal raised the issue on its own motion. Second, although the court of appeal notified the parties at the outset of the hearing that it would raise new issues, it did not specify the precise nature of those issues or indicate whether one or more could result in Mr. Barton's acquittal being set aside. Further. Although the issues relating to the charge on the -the after-the-fact conduct had evidently crystallized before the hearing began, the court did not advise defense counsel of its concerns prior to the hearing. As a result, defense counsel was not in a position to seek an adjournment to consider the issue and potentially provide further written submissions. The court then allowed the Crown to advance certain arguments on after-the-fact conduct for the first time in reply submissions and at the end of the hearing the court indicated that there was no need for further written argument. In my respectful view, applying mien this was an instance in which it was necessary to request supplementary written submissions from both parties, whether before or after the hearing, particularly since the after-the-fact conduct issue put Mr. Barton's acquittal on the line. For these reasons, I am respectfully of the view that the Court of Appeal should not have ordered a new trial based on the alleged deficiencies in after-the-fact conduct instructions. Further, I would not entertain the Crown's arguments on the -the after-the-fact conduct instructions here. Lastly, though I need not finally decide the issue, I am skeptical of the Crown's arguments that the trial judge's instructions on after-the-fact conduct were so defective as to amount to a reversible error. I say this for three main reasons. First, beginning with the absence of a specific instruction linking Mr. Barton's after-the-fact conduct to his overall credibility, this court's jurisprudence confirms that after-the-fact conduct can be used to impugn the accused credibility. That said, I am not persuaded the jury would have failed to recognize, as a matter of common sense, that the fact Mr. Barton admittedly told a string of lies following Miss Gladue's death could be considered in assessing his overall credibility. Much, of course, would depend on the jury's assessment of Mr. Barton's explanations for his having told these lies. Assuming his explanations were rejected as untruthful, then in line with the trial judge's general instructions on assessing credibility, the jurors would have recognized that a person who lies is less worthy of belief. To suggest otherwise is to assume jurors leave their common sense at the door when they enter the courtroom. Furthermore, I observe that the Crown never requested a specific instruction linking Mr. Barton's after-the-fact conduct to his credibility, nor has it suggested, whether before this court or the courts below, that his after-the-fact conduct had any bearing whatsoever on whether he had the requisite intent for murder. To the contrary, Crown counsel stressed that I want to make sure that after-the-fact conduct goes to his position that it is an accident, not intention for murder or manslaughter." Second, while the trial judge's failure to include the word specific in his charge was undoubtedly an error, I doubt this omission irreparably tainted the charge. In assessing the seriousness of this error, it must be borne in mind that a charge should not be endlessly dissected and subjected to minute scrutiny and criticism. An appellate court must examine the alleged error in the context of the entire charge and of the trial as a whole and at the end of the day it is the overall effect of the charge that matters. With these principles in mind, I note that the trial judge's charge on after-the-fact conduct contained a number of passages that are both clear and free from legal error, including the following. The Crown's position is that the -the after-the-fact conduct evidence is circumstantial evidence that can lead you to conclude that Mr. Barton is guilty of criminal conduct as opposed to having caused Ms. Gladue's death by accident. You must not infer Mr. Barton's guilt from his after-the-fact conduct unless, when you consider it along with all the other evidence, you are satisfied that it is consistent with his guilt and is inconsistent with any other reasonable conclusion. Evidence of after-the-fact conduct has only an indirect bearing on the issue of Mr. Barton's guilt. You must be careful about inferring his guilt from this evidence because there might be other explanations for his conduct. And... You cannot use the -the after-the-fact conduct evidence to draw any conclusion as to which of the available offenses Mr. Barton might be guilty of. In my view, when read fairly and as a whole, the trial judge's charge on after-the-fact conduct adequately, albeit imperfectly, conveyed to the jury that they could consider Mr. Barton's after-the-fact conduct in assessing guilt and equipped them to do so. Third, It is telling that the Crown not only vetted and approved the instructions on after-the-fact conduct, but also helped shape those instructions. As indicated, when assessing whether an alleged error in a jury charge warrants appellate intervention, the failure to object says something about both the overall accuracy of the jury instructions and the seriousness of the alleged misdirection. And this is particularly the case when counsel has specifically endorsed the instruction in question. Not only that, but the Crown did not even target the instructions on after-the-fact conduct in its Notice of Appeal or Factum, before the Court of Appeal, and when the Court raised the matter for the first time, Crown counsel requested additional time to research the issue. In sum, in light of the Crown's conduct in the courts below, it can hardly be said that the alleged errors were glaring and serious. Accordingly, while I need not finally decide on the matter— I am inclined to view that the trial judge's instructions on after-the-fact conduct, while imperfect, were not so defective as to amount to reversible error. Regardless, any deficiencies in those instructions can be rectified by the trial judge presiding over the new trial on unlawful act manslaughter, to which I now turn. Subpart H. New Trial Having addressed the key substantive issues on appeal, I come to the question of remedy. Is a new trial warranted? If so, on what offense? Murder, manslaughter, or both? In considering these questions, this court must keep in mind that a jury acquittal is not set aside lightly. To secure a new trial, the Crown bears a heavy burden. It must demonstrate that the error or errors in question might reasonably be thought, in the concrete reality of the case at hand, to have had a material bearing on the acquittal. A mere hypothetical possibility that the accused would have been convicted but for the error errors will not suffice. However, the Crown is not required to demonstrate that the verdict would necessarily have been different. 1. A new trial on unlawful act manslaughter is warranted. To acquit Mr. Barton of unlawful act manslaughter, the jury had to resolve the central questions of whether Miss Gladue subjectively consented to the sexual activity in question, in accordance with Section 273.11 of the Code, and if not, whether Mr. Barton honestly but mistakenly believed she communicated her consent to that sexual activity at the time it occurred. In my view, the failure to implement the Section 276 regime carried a significant risk that the jury would, whether consciously or unconsciously, engage in impermissible forms of reasoning on these central issues thereby irreparably tainting the truth-seeking process. In the context of this particular case, which involved an Indigenous woman who engaged in sex work and who was not alive to tell the jury her side of the story, this error was particularly grave, as the risk of prior sexual activity evidence being used improperly, thereby compromising the truth-seeking function of the courts, was exceptionally high. Without proper instruction, the jury was left to cobble together its own unstated rules about how it would use this evidence. Further, the trial judge's failure to implement the Section 276 regime was exacerbated by, and was inseparable from, the failure to caution the jury against mistakes of law masquerading as mistakes of fact when considering the defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent, assuming that defense was available to Mr. Burton at all. That will be a matter for the presiding judge at the new trial. Individually, these errors were serious. Together, they were devastating. They went straight to the heart of the lesser and included offense of unlawful act manslaughter, which was premised on sexual assault. Accordingly, I am satisfied that the Crown has met its heavy burden, In the concrete reality of the case at hand, it can reasonably be thought that the trial judge's errors had a material bearing on Mr. Burton's acquittal for unlawful act manslaughter. Therefore, I would order a new trial on that offense. The only question that remains is whether a new trial on first-degree murder is also warranted. 2. A new trial on first-degree murder is not warranted. The Crown conceded before the Court of Appeal that the only ground of appeal that would warrant a new trial on first-degree murder was the motive issue. Nonetheless, the Court of Appeal held that noncompliance with the Section 276 regime warranted a new trial on first-degree murder. Reversing its position from the one it took before the Court of Appeal, the Crown now argues that the entire charge was tainted by the failure to observe the requirements of Section 276. Respectfully, for three main reasons, I cannot agree. First, the Crown's case on first-degree murder hinged on a relatively straightforward factual question. Did Mr. Barton cut Miss Gladue using a sharp object? Indeed, the Crown stressed in its closing submissions to the jury that the major determination for you in this case is whether Mr. Barton used a knife. If he did, then the only question was whether he had the requisite mental element for murder and keeping in mind the common sense inference that a person generally intends the natural and probable consequences of his or her actions, the trial judge rightly noted that it would not be much of a stretch to conclude that there was an intention to harm or injure her. However, if the jury was not satisfied that Mr. Barton cut Miss Gladue, then the charge of murder could not be sustained, a point conceded by the Crown at trial the court made a tactical choice to focus its efforts on developing its theory that Mr. Barton cut Miss Gladue using a sharp object. Absent evidence of a murder weapon, the Crown's murder case turned primarily on its expert evidence that Miss Gladue's fatal wound was cut. Evidently, the jury was not persuaded. This can perhaps be explained by defense counsel's success in casting doubt on the Crown's expert's opinion during cross-examination pitting that evidence against the opinion of his own expert, which contrasted starkly with that of the Crown's expert. In short, on the factual question of whether Mr. Barton cut Ms. Gladue, the Crown lost in a battle of experts. Second, and relatedly, the Crown has provided no plausible explanation for how the jury could have used prior sexual activity evidence to improperly reason its way through the first-degree murder charge. Third, The crown acknowledged in the court below that the only ground of appeal implicating the murder charge was the motive issue however as i have explained the motive instructions were not tainted by reversible error accordingly the crown has not demonstrated any error spilling over into the murder charge assuming however for the sake of argument that the trial judge did err by instructing the jury on motive because motive was simply irrelevant to the issues in play I am not satisfied that the error would meet the stringent graveline threshold. In my respectful view, the mere possibility that the trial judge's instructions might have left the jury with the mistaken impression that the Crown's failure to prove motive was a fundamental flaw in its case is, in the concrete reality of the case at hand, too speculative to meet this stringent threshold. This is particularly so given the trial judge's instruction that the Crown is not required to prove motive and given that, at the end of the day, the murder charge hinged largely on the expert evidence bearing on whether Miss Gladue's fatal wound was caused by a sharp object. Moreover, as I have already explained, I am inclined to the view that the absence of a specific instruction linking Mr. Barton's after-the-fact conduct to his credibility was of no moment. Further, in relation to the murder charge, I would reiterate that the Crown has not suggested, whether before this court or the courts below, that Mr. Barton's after-the-fact conduct had any bearing whatsoever on whether he had the requisite intent for murder. To the contrary, Crown counsel stressed at trial, I want to make sure that after-the-fact conduct goes to his position that this is an accident, not intention for murder or manslaughter. As for the possibility raised by my colleagues, Justices Abella and Karakatsanis, that because Ms. Gladue was referred to as native and a prostitute during the trial, the jury might have acquitted Mr. Barton of murder, and manslaughter as well, on the basis of reasoning that it was tainted by conscious or unconscious racial prejudice or reliance on racist stereotypes. I respectfully take issue with my colleague's approach. As a matter of procedural fairness, this issue was not raised as a ground of appeal before the Court of Appeal nor did the Crown request a specific instruction designed to address this matter at trial. In these circumstances, I question the propriety of raising this issue as a basis for ordering a new trial on murder. Be that as it may, will I accept that there is always a risk that conscious or unconscious bias will seep into a juror's analysis. In this case, there was a simple and obvious explanation for why the jury unanimously acquitted Mr. Barton of murder, that does not require this court to speculate about the potential influence of conscious or unconscious bias. The Crown chose to rest its theory of murder on the notion that Mr. Barton cut Miss Gladue using a sharp object. That theory depended largely on the expert evidence it called, evidence which suffered from gaps and holes which rendered it less than compelling. Hence, this was by no means a case in which we are left wondering how twelve independent jurors could have acquitted Mr. Barton of murder Without resorting to reasoning based on conscious or unconscious bias. To the contrary, there was a perfectly legitimate explanation for the acquittal that does not involve impermissible reasoning. The Crown's theory simply did not hold up under scrutiny. I further note that when sworn in, all twelve jurors took an oath that they would perform their duties in a fair, impartial, and unbiased manner, and that they would render a true verdict according to evidence. The trial judge reminded the jurors of this in his final instructions. He explained that they must examine the evidence without sympathy or prejudice for or against anyone involved in these proceedings and that this means you must now make good on your promise to put aside whatever biases or prejudices you may hold or feel. Admittedly, these safeguards are not a panacea and I acknowledge that specific instructions addressing particular types of prejudice can provide an additional layer of protection going forward. That said, we should not be too quick to assume that they play no role in fostering impartial and unbiased reasoning. To conclude otherwise would be to assume that such instructions, which have been repeated to juries throughout the ages, were of no value and amounted to little more than lip service. I refuse to go there. To do so would be to lose sight of the well-established jurisprudence of this court expressing our strong faith in the institutions of jury and our firmly held belief that juries perform their duties according to the law and the instructions they are given. This is not a form of blind faith. Rather, it is a reflection of the well-earned trust and confidence that has been built up over centuries of experience in courtrooms throughout the Commonwealth. The institution of the jury is a fundamental pillar of our criminal justice system. We erode our confidence in this bedrock institution at our own peril. For these reasons, I conclude that a new trial on the murder charge is not warranted. In my view, in the circumstances of this case, it would be contrary to the principle against double jeopardy enshrined in section 11H of the charter to force Mr. Barton to face a second trial on the first degree murder charge. Subpart I, Other Issues While the reasons outlined above are sufficient to dispose of the appeal, I wish to make a few brief comments on several additional issues. To be clear, I offer these remarks solely for the purpose of promoting greater clarity in the law and providing guidance for future cases, including the new trial in this case. 1. Vitiation of consent to sexual activity for public policy reasons At trial... One of the issues was whether even if the jury was satisfied, Miss Gladue consented to the sexual activity in question, that consent was nonetheless vitiated for public policy reasons. This issue was closely tied to the Ontario Court of Appeals decision and the Queen and Zhao. There, relying on the previous decision of the Queen and Kweishi, leave to appeal refused. The court held that in a case of alleged sexual activity causing bodily harm, consent to sexual activity should be vitiated on public policy grounds where the accused 1. subjectively intended to cause bodily harm, and 2. did in fact cause bodily harm. In the present case, the Crown, the defense, and the trial judge all proceeded on the basis that the holding in Zhao applied in Alberta. The Court of Appeal, by contrast, declined to rule on the matter. In my view, for a number of reasons, this is not the right case in which to decide whether consent to sexual activity should be vitiated where the accused intentionally caused bodily harm in the course of otherwise consensual sexual activities. First and foremost, the issue has no bearing on the outcome of this appeal, as a new trial on manslaughter will be held in any event. Moreover, the Crown did not appeal on the basis that the trial judge erred in his instructions on the Zhao Pathway to a manslaughter conviction. Furthermore, the record does not provide a proper foundation for this court to address the matter. Not only did the courts below not grapple with the issue and reach a firm conclusion, but the party submissions before this court on the potential implications of adopting the Zhao principle were insufficient to give this important issue the full and comprehensive analysis it deserves. Accordingly, I would leave this issue for another day. 2. Instructions on the defense of accident. As indicated at trial, defense counsel maintained that Miss Gladue's death was a mere accident, which he said was antithetical to an intention to cause serious harm or death. The trial judge charged the jury on the defense of accident as follows: Mr. Barton denies any intention to hurt Miss Gladue and maintains that the wound to her vaginal wall was accidentally caused during consensual sexual activities. There is evidence before you that raises the defense of accident. Mr. Barton does not have to prove this defense applies. If you are left with a reasonable doubt about whether this defense applies, the Crown has not proven its case beyond a reasonable doubt, and therefore you must find Mr. Barton not guilty. In this case, it is suggested by the defense that the conduct of Mr. Barton should be excused, and he should be found not guilty of manslaughter because of the harm allegedly caused by him to Cindy Gadou was a pure accident for which he is not criminally responsible. The defensive accident may succeed in these circumstances if, at the time the offenses allegedly occurred, Mr. Barton was not engaged in an unlawful act. For these purposes, an accident is an unintentional and unexpected occurrence that produces hurt or loss. You must determine from the evidence whether there is reasonable doubt that the harm to Cindy Gladue came about unintentionally and unexpectedly as a result of the conduct of Bradley Barton. If it did, and if it was not otherwise the product of an unlawful act, he is entitled to be found not guilty. The Court of Appeal found these instructions to be deficient in various respects. Among other things, the Court noted that Mr. Barton's conduct in repeatedly thrusting his hand into Ms. Gladue's vagina was no accident. It was volitional. The court also stressed that, in light of the approach taken at trial, Mr. Barton's claim that he did not subjectively intend or foresee Miss Gladue's death would have gone only to the issues of vitiation of consent for public policy reasons. But the trial judge did not make this clear to the jury. In my view, it is neither necessary nor appropriate for this court to consider whether the trial judge's instructions on accident gave rise to a reversible error. Again. The issue has no bearing on the outcome in this appeal, and the Crown did not object to the instructions on accident or challenge those instructions as a separate ground for appeal. That said, to provide guidance for future cases, I will offer a few brief comments. The way in which the term accident is used in everyday parlance passes over some of the nuances that characterize the use of the term in the legal context. As the authors of Manning, Mewitt, and Sankoff Criminal Law explain, an accident is, in the popular and ordinary sense, a mishap or untoward event not expected or designed. But the term has a more specialized meaning in the criminal law context. In particular, in this context, the term accident is used to signal one or both of the following. One that the act in question was involuntary, i.e., non thereby negating the actus reus of the offense or two, that the accused did not have the requisite mens rea. With respect to the latter scenario, in assessing whether a claim of accident may negate mens rea in any particular case, it is obviously essential to consider what the relevant mens rea requirement is in the first place. In carrying out this inquiry, it must be kept in mind that mens rea requirements vary and include, for example, 1. Subjective intention to bring about a prohibited consequence, 2. Subjective awareness of prohibited circumstances, and 3. Objective fault. The classic example of an offense that falls within the first category is murder, which requires subjective foresight of death in the act of killing. As for the second category, the mens rea of sexual assault consists of the intention to touch and knowing of, or being reckless or willfully blind to, a lack of consent on the part of the person touched. The third category includes, for instance, the mens rea of unlawful act manslaughter, which requires objective foreseeability of the risk of bodily harm, which is neither trivial nor transitory in the context of a dangerous act. Where the offense charged requires proof of subjective intent to bring about a particular consequence, the claim that the accused did not intend to bring about that consequence, making it a mere accident, is legally relevant, as it could negate the mens rea required for the conviction. By contrast, where the offense only requires a subjective awareness of particular circumstances, an accused claim that the consequences of his act, such as injury to another, were unintentional and unexpected, making those consequences a mere accident, is naturally of no assistance. In other words, where the offense charged does not require proof of subjective intent to bring about any consequences in the first place, the accidental nature of the consequences is legally irrelevant. Finally, if the offense requires proof of objective fault, for instance, that the prohibited consequence was objectively foreseeable, then a claim of accident could negate that fault element if the prohibited consequence was such a chance occurrence that the trier of fact is left in a state of reasonable doubt as to whether objectively it was foreseeable. In the present case, there was no suggestion that Mr. Barton acted without volition. Accordingly, the first type of accident, the one that negates the actus reus, was not present. The only potential relevance of Mr. Barton's claim of accident, therefore, was in respect of the mens rea. Importantly, however, neither sexual assault nor unlawful act manslaughter requires subjective intent to bring about any particular consequence. Here, Mr. Barton conceded that the non-trivial bodily harm was objectively foreseeable and the sexual activity in question was inherently dangerous. Therefore, setting aside the issue of whether intentionally causing bodily harm in the course of otherwise consensual sexual activities would vitiate consent, i.e. the principle endorsed in Zhao, to the extent Mr. Barton claimed that Miss Gladue's death was an accident, in the sense that he did not subjectively intend to bring about that consequence— this claim was of no assistance in negating the mens rea required for sexual assault or unlawful act manslaughter. On this latter point, recent appellant jurisprudence confirms that if the accused accidentally caused the deceased death in the course of an unlawful act, but it was reasonably foreseeable that the act would result in non-trivial bodily harm to the deceased, then the mens rea requirement for unlawful act manslaughter is still met. In this case, the trial judge's instructions on accident did not make these points clear. Looking ahead at the new trial on unlawful act manslaughter, the trial judge should observe the foregoing principles when instructing the jury on accident, so as to avoid leaving the jury with the mistaken impression that so long as Miss Gladue's death was a mishap, an acquittal must follow. Finally, to avoid confusion in future cases, I would encourage trial judges to focus on the questions of voluntariness and or negation of mens rea, as appropriate, when instructing jurors on the so-called defense of accident. As the authors of Manning, Mewitt, and Sankoff Criminal Law point out, what is relevant from a legal standpoint is not whether the accused is claiming that what happened was an accident, but whether this claim demonstrates the absence of one of the elements of the offense charged. 3. Instructions Addressing Prejudice Against Indigenous Women and Girls in Sexual Assault Cases When jurors are sworn and impaneled, Canadian society tasks them with a weighty responsibility, deciding whether, on the evidence put before them, the accused is guilty or not. This task is not easy. It requires patience, judgment, and careful analysis. But most of all, it requires an open mind, one that is free from bias, prejudice, or sympathy but it would be naive to assume that the moment the jurors enter the courtroom, they leave their biases, prejudices, and sympathies behind. That reality was openly acknowledged in The Queen and Williams, where this court discussed the invasive, elusive, and corrosive nature of one particular type of bias—racism against Indigenous persons. Justice McLaughlin, as she then was, emphasized that to suggest that all persons who possess racial prejudice— will erase those prejudices from the mind when serving as jurors is to underestimate the insidious nature of racial prejudice and the stereotyping that underlies it. Trial judges, as gatekeepers, play an important role in keeping biases, prejudices, and stereotypes out of the courtroom. In this regard, one of the main tools trial judges have at their disposal is the ability to provide instructions to the jury. Bearing in mind this court's admonition that it cannot be assumed that judicial directions to act impartially will always effectively counter racial prejudice. Such instructions can, in my view, play a role in exposing biases, prejudices, and stereotypes, and encouraging jurors to discharge their duties fairly and impartially. In particular, a carefully crafted instruction can expose biases, prejudices, and stereotypes that lurk beneath the surface, thereby allowing all justice system participants to address them head-on, openly, honestly, and without fear. Trials do not take place in a historical, cultural, or social vacuum. Indigenous persons have suffered a long history of colonialism, the effects of which continue to be felt. There is no denying that Indigenous people, in particular Indigenous women, girls, and sex workers, have endured serious injustices, including high rates of sexual violence against women the ongoing work of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls is just one reminder of that painful reality. Furthermore, this court has acknowledged on several occasions the detrimental effects of widespread racism against Indigenous people within our criminal justice system. For example, in Williams, this court recognized that Indigenous people are the target of hurtful biases, stereotypes, and assumptions, including stereotypes about credibility, worthiness, and criminal propensity to name just a few. Moreover, in Ewart, this court stressed that discrimination experienced by Indigenous persons, whether as a result of overtly racist attitudes or culturally inappropriate practices, extends to all parts of the criminal justice system, including the prison system. In short, when it comes to truth and reconciliation from a criminal justice system perspective, much needed work remains to be done. With this in mind, and in my view, our criminal justice system and all participants within it should take reasonable steps to address systemic biases, prejudices, and stereotypes against Indigenous persons, and in particular, Indigenous women and sex workers, head-on. Turning a blind eye to these biases, prejudices, and stereotypes is not an answer. Accordingly, as an additional safeguard going forward, in sexual assault cases where the complainant is an Indigenous woman or girl, Trial judges would be well advised to provide an express instruction aimed at countering prejudice against Indigenous women and girls. This instruction would go beyond a more generic instruction to reason impartially and without sympathy or prejudice. Insofar as the content of such an instruction is concerned, there is no magic formula. In my view, trial judges should be given discretion to tailor the instructions to the particular circumstances preferably after having consulted with the Crown and the defence. In a case like the present, the trial judge might consider explaining to the jury that Indigenous people in Canada, and in particular Indigenous women and girls, have been subjected to a long history of colonisation and systemic racism, the effects of which continue to be felt. The trial judge might also dispel a number of troubling stereotypical assumptions about Indigenous women who perform sex work, including that such persons are not entitled to the same protections the criminal justice system promises other Canadians, are not deserving of respect, humanity, and dignity, are sexual objects for male gratification, need not be given consent to sexual activity and are available for the taking, assume the risk of any harm that befalls them because they engage in a dangerous form of work and are less credible than other people. An instruction of this nature supports several core concepts upon which our justice system rests, including substantive equality, which represents the animating norm of Section 15 of the Charter, the Court's truth-seeking function, the right to an impartial tribunal, protected under Sections 7 and 11 d of the Charter, and, relatedly, trial fairness, which is already indicated must be assessed from both the perspective of the accused and of society more broadly. With regard to trial fairness, it is worth emphasizing that any instruction given must not privilege the rights of the complainant over those of the accused. The objective would instead be to identify specific biases, prejudices, and stereotypes that may reasonably be expected to arise in the particular case and attempt to remove them from the jury's deliberative process in a fair and balanced way without prejudicing the accused. In sum, to better ensure Indigenous women and girls receive the full protection and benefit of the law in sexual assault cases, our criminal justice system should take reasonable steps to address biases, prejudices, and stereotypes against Indigenous women and girls openly, honestly, and without fear. While the type of instruction identified above is by no means a perfect solution to ridding our courts and Canadian society more broadly, of biases, prejudices, and stereotypes against Indigenous women and girls, it represents a step forward. 4. Language used to address Ms. Gladue at trial With the foregoing discussion in mind, I wish to comment briefly on the language used to refer to Miss Gladue at trial. Witnesses Crown Counsel and Defense Counsel all repeatedly referred to Miss Gladue as a Native girl or Native woman by the Court of Appeals count approximately 26 times. In my view, while in some cases it may be both necessary and appropriate to establish certain biographical details about an individual such as his or her race, heritage, and ethnicity, where that particular information is relevant to a particular issue at trial, and while witnesses may at times rely on such descriptors without being prompted by counsel, it is almost always preferable to call someone by his or her name. There may be situations where it would be appropriate for the trial judge to intervene to ensure this principle is respected. Being respectful and remaining cognizant of the language used to refer to a person is particularly important in a case like this, where there was no suggestion that Ms. Gladue's status as an Indigenous woman was somehow relevant to the issues at trial. While there is nothing to suggest that it was anyone's deliberate intention in this case to invoke the kind of biases and prejudices against Indigenous women discussed above, the language used at trial was nevertheless problematic. At the end of the day, her name was Ms. Gladue, not Native Woman, and there was no reason why the former could not have been used consistently as a simple matter of respect. 5. Intervenor Submission Before the Court of Appeal I do not find it necessary to consider whether the interveners before the Court of Appeal overstepped their proper role. I would simply re-emphasize that while interveners play a vital role in our justice system, including our criminal justice system, they must not assume the role of a third-party prosecutor and they must not be permitted to widen or add to the issues in dispute, and appellate courts must carefully enforce these restrictions. 6. Other Issues Considered by the Court of Appeal Finally, the Court of Appeal dealt with a range of other issues in admirable detail. As I have determined that this appeal can be disposed of based on the analysis set out above, I find it unnecessary to comment on those other issues. Part 6. Conclusion Our criminal justice system holds out a promise to all Canadians. Everyone is equally entitled to the law's full protection and to be treated with dignity, humanity, and respect. Ms. Gladue was no exception. She was a mother, a daughter, a friend, and a member of her community. Her life mattered. She was valued. She was important. She was loved. Her status as an indigenous woman who performed sex work did not change any of that in the slightest. But as these reasons show, the criminal justice system did not deliver on its promise to afford her the law's full protection. And as a result, it let her down. Indeed, it let us all down. In the result, I would allow the appeal in part, in order a new trial on unlawful act manslaughter.
1: Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you are able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Radomile. Audio engineering by Anthony Radomile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at JulieLundyArt.com. And music done by Matt Radomile at radnkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at LegalListening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case, bye now.